Happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. T-minus three shows and counting before we move over to CRTV. Beginning on February the 27th, don't miss an episode. Subscribe now. Use promo code DACE for that discount. You'll not you'll just get not only our show, but also Mark Stein, Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, Stephen Crowder as well. CRTV.com, promo code DACE, D-E-A-C-E. Also, you can let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So... Um, we're going to have a, uh, a roundtable discussion here tonight about how we can try and get this presidency back on the rails. I'm just going to I'm just going to be brutally honest because that's kind of what we do. I, I am worried. I am concerned. I have been concerned the last three days. I've been somewhat hesitant about explaining how concerned I truly am, mainly because Todd, your counsel was you want me to, you wanted me to make sure I wasn't overreacting. Tonight I came in to do the show. Todd looked at me and said, "You're not overreacting." Okay, so um, I, I'm I'm just telling you I'm worried. I'm I'm really worried, and it, it, the worry comes with with a dilemma. Because you can see what is happening here. I'm not giving you here with what I'm going to say next. This is not some insightful, salient analysis. This is not some contrarian, cutting-edge view. This is pretty simple. I think all of you, or most of you, see this as well. What is happening here is the left and the media is attempting to do and conduct what amounts to a coup. They're attempting a coup of the Trump presidency by undermining it with anonymous leaks. Many of these, I believe, are coming from the so-called intelligence community because of the nature of the leaks and what they're leaking about. And I told you two months ago, I thought it was dumb for the president to pick a fight with this enemy. These are people, they lurk in the shadows, they never have to be held accountable, they can leak truths or untruths with impunity to a media that is ready there with a bullhorn to magnify them. And put them in the ethereal. And even if people don't trust the media, and they don't. Trump has defeated the media. But remember I said, the media may be impotent, but they are not irrelevant. And what is happening right now is this White House seemingly can't get out of its own way to change the subject. Now, they're not alone in that regard, and we'll get into that here in a moment. Because they need help. They can't do it themselves. Why do I care? Well, Steve, you were never Trump, so why do you care? Don't you feel validated? No. I 
said during the election, I thought he'd be a disastrous president because of what we're watching now. When things got off to a decent start during the transition, that's why I got optimistic because I started seeing things that I didn't anticipate we'd see. A certain level of preparedness, maturity. Those things are out the window now. Guys, we had a press conference today, a joint press conference with BB Netanyahu, which could the timing could not be better for the president. He needed that today badly. Somebody who's more popular with his base than he is. Somebody that is a loyal ally, wants to be his friend. They do an hour press conference. It's going great. And yet in the middle of it, Trump, for reasons only Allah knows, I, I don't know why, guys. I don't know chooses to look at Netanyahu in the middle of it and say, I wish you guys would stop settling your own land. I, I just, Mama was right. Some things just can't be helped. I, I, here's why I care, because I love my country. I care about my kids' future. And I believe in the plaque Ronald Reagan was said to have had in the White House when he was there. And this plaque in the Oval Office said it's amazing what you can get done when you don't care who gets the credit for it. I hope he's a great president. I want to be proven wrong. I'm not enjoying this on any level because I understand what the consequences for this are going to be if it turns out as badly as we fear it might. We will be told we can never have another outsider again. We can never have a force of nature again. We can never have anybody that challenges the status quo ever again. See, we tried and it didn't work. That's why we just have to go with whatever milk toast pablum Washington wants to serve us. That is the message we will be given. Not to mention, this is, this is always true in politics. It's never not been true. Bad Republicans are always followed by even worse Democrats every time. Every time a Republican fails to do his job or moves to the left, when he or she is defeated, they will be followed by a Democrat who is worse every time. We saw this at the failure of the end of the Bush presidency and who succeeded him, a flat-out Marxist who ruled for eight years with an iron fist, pen and a phone. Because when this is over, if he fails, he's just going off. He's 70 years old. He's just going off into the sunset, guys, at the Mar-a-Lago. All right. He's got cool photos of him and his buddies with the nuclear football. He's playing golf. At his age, he's rich and he's not buying green bananas. We're the ones that are going to pay for the 20 year mistake that, that this ended up being. That's why I'm worried. His kids aren't going to care if the top marginal tax rates 4% or 45. Well, that's just, you know, that's eight carat gold on the toilet seat of the Trump plane. They don't, they don't lose a thing. We do. They're not particularly invested in our religious liberty. We are. They're not particularly invested in defunding Planned Parenthood and the pro-life cause. We are. They don't really lose anything if this doesn't work. We lose a lot. So I am tempted to go out there and defend this White House. Especially when I see stuff in the media like Flynn's lying is, is worse than Watergate is what I saw last night. Other than the fact the FBI says it's not investigating Flynn for any criminal activity and people went to prison for Watergate. Yeah, it's exactly like that. But see, this is the hysteria of a coup. That's what coups do. This kind of hysteria. Now, I thought Flynn should have resigned four four days ago. But as bad of an appointment as that was, it's not Watergate, guys. But here's the problem if you go out there and you defend them. Here's the problem. Like, I can't even imagine what Netanyahu was thinking this afternoon. 
He's like, I'm doing you a solid, bro. I'm doing you a solid right now. I'm holding court. I'm owning, I'm owning this press conference. I'm giving out Jewish history, theology lessons. I'm rolling this. I'm crushing it. And in the middle of it, you turn and look at me and say, I wish you'd stop settling your own land. <laughs> I just... See, here's the thing. Trump is on the record beyond bromancing Russia and Putin, and we all know it. His cult doesn't even deny it. That's why they're, his cult will just tell you that Putin's our friend now. He even called for them to hack the DNC in the middle of the election, guys. He has a problem with the truth, and we all know this. Three weeks ago, I spent my, most of my weekend defending them on immigration because I agreed with what they were doing. Only to have some of their own people go out there and then undermine the very message that many of us were trying to convey in defending them. So there's a lot of people out there like me, conservatives with platforms, that could defend them that are not. Why? I'll just tell you why. There are some of us who were never Trump originally who just don't want to let go of that. But there's really not that many of us. And there really weren't that many never Trumpers to begin with. Just a few with some big names other than myself. What I mean is there's a lot of conservatives who would like to go out there, whether they were never Trump or not. People who are credible and have platforms and defend them. But here's the problem. It's clear on the one hand that the left media, they are trying to undermine the presidency from the get-go and set a precedent that will be far damaging for our constitutional republic, essentially turn it into a banana republic. And that, and, and that would make it difficult for the president to do even some of the stuff we want him to do that he seems willing to at least do at least a few of these things. But here's the problem. If you go out there, you're going to get Kellyanne Conway. You're sent out there two days in a row to promote a narrative on General Flynn that is contradicted by your own White House within an hour. Happened to her two days in a row. They're going to pull your pants down? Is he going to embarrass you? What, what don't you know? Hard to believe that, that because either Trump lied to Vice President Pence, that, that, that Flynn did tell him, or he let Flynn get away with lying to Pence for, what was it, 11 days? Why would he do that? See, <laughs> it's an odd place to be in. Uh, when you don't, I'm someone who doesn't mind taking a stand, but I, I don't, I'm not sure what stand to take or even when to take it at all. More on this in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Here's what I mean when I, guys, when I say I'm not sure what stand to take or when to take it. See, the internet, as the great prophet Bob Seger once saying, the internet never forgets, all right? Once you blow your credibility on the internet, you don't get it back. Once you become a joke, and I don't mean being panned by your political opponents. I mean when everybody, when they hear your name, the first response is to snicker or feel uncomfortable. When your own side, when you get on camera and your own side's like, no. Like, when you get Sarah Palin. That's what I'm talking about. Once you become a joke, you're broke in politics. I don't know anybody who's become a joke who has recovered. I, I am worried, worried about Kellyanne. Why does she stay? Kellyanne doesn't need the money. Doesn't need clients. 
She was she came up with Newt Gingrich and the old contract with America, Republican Revolution. She was here before Trump got here. She will be here long after he has gone. Okay, she doesn't need this. She's not Katrina Pearson, some of these other people, the hanger-on types that Trump attracts because he's their only vehicle to relevance. She doesn't need this. Doesn't need a book deal. She doesn't need any of this. So my only guess is she's getting, she's putting up with getting her pants pulled down because two things. One, she's looking at the talent around her in the White House and wondering, yeah, my credibility might be shot, but at least I'm sane. And if I walk out of here... They get to put the douchey millennial guy who read off a cue card over the weekend in my place. If that's the bet B team, I'm better off staying. Two, she loves the country. She's the best they have, and, and I'm concerned her credibility is broken. Who wants to be the next her? Maybe it's not fixable. Maybe I, I, I've never met someone whose personality just wasn't controllable on any level, right? Because I, I don't know sociopaths. We, we commit them. He has to, at some point, I, I cannot believe he just walks in. We talked about this during the campaign, too, didn't we? Does he just walk into meetings with like the Scottish government negotiating a golf deal and just drop indiscriminate non sequiturs and bombs hey i heard your wife was sleeping with some dude or was sexting some dude last night hey what do you guys think about putting the 18th hole over here do you think he does that i doubt it i wasn't in the art of the deal steve i, I doubt it so why do we keep seeing this i am concerned I am concerned because the American people cannot handle this. We have short attention spans. They will bore easy. Where is the substance? You know, your former governor, when you lived in Wisconsin, Scott Walker, faced this kind of a, an undermining, right? But, but when he stood up to the mobocracy, he was trying to advance an issue. And so people got to say... You know what? We elected him to do something about this issue. He said he was going to. Let's see if it works out. If it works out, he was right. Don't listen to the mob. If it doesn't work out, the mob was right. Get rid of him. You know what I'm saying? For Trump, the issue is him. Whether you like him or not, people can't survive on that. We're reaching the point where folks are going to be like, weren't you going to build a wall or something? And Republicans in Congress, they, they were sworn in three weeks before Trump took over. Is there not one meaningful piece of legislation? I don't know. Can I can I think of something they could put on his desk? Something that might change the narrative. Something that might keep a campaign promise. Some highly unpopular piece of legislation, maybe. If it only existed, that the Democrats just got completely rectumed for three straight elections whenever this thing came up. And it was just tailor-made for them to just get rid of it and win some points and set their, their the guy who's their standard bearer up to be successful and, and win, win some, you know, a, f- a few weeks of, of good graces from the American people to get his bearing straight. If, if only such an F an F if only such a policy existed that could be repealed, that they could that they that they've known for years about even and maybe even plotted for years to get rid of. And now's their chance. And they were ready to hit the ground running and they could put that bill on his desk tomorrow at a Rose Garden ceremony when it's going to be 65 degrees in Washington, D.C. and get the American people's attention. But alas, no such policy exists. So I guess they just sit there and watch Trump drown.
This is not entirely on him at all. Do the Republicans in Congress not realize that if he goes down, he's taken a lot of them with him? Last night, there was a special election in a congressional district in Wisconsin that Trump won 61 to 32 on election night. Special elections are always low turnout, the most committed. They're a real good read of where each side's base energy is. Because most people don't even know the special elections are happening. So only the most committed vote in these. Trump won this congressional district 61 to 32 in Wisconsin. Last night in the special election, it was 53 to 47 the Republicans won. That's a yo, guys. That's a yo. That's a problem. And just as Trump's personality cast a long enough shadow that it allowed Republicans, Todd, to play in states like yours in Wisconsin and to, and to almost win Minnesota and to win Michigan and win Pennsylvania, well, if Trump's shadow is long enough that it allows them to play in some of these states they couldn't win in the past, if it goes bad, what will his shadow then do? You'll start losing states you otherwise would have lost. Just as his shadow helped you win states you otherwise would not have won, his, his shadow, if it goes bad, he'll take you with him. He will end up letting you, helping you lose states you otherwise would not have lost. So you're looking at that Senate map in 2018, and Democrats have 10 seats to defend where, in states where Republicans won. Throw that map out the window. It's irrelevant now. Whole environment has changed. Whole environment has changed. The 2008, the 2006 map was in the Republicans' favor, too. They got annihilated. Want to know why there were so many winnable seats in the 2010 midterms when Obama's environment went bad? Because Democrats had won a bunch of swing and Republican-leaning seats in 2006 when Bush went bad. I am concerned. I am, I am very concerned. The country needs him to be successful. It's not about my personal thoughts on him as a president that none of that is really relevant it's irrelevant all i want is what's best for the country but the way this is tracking gentlemen you tell me i we are on day 25 and he can't he can't get he can't change the narrative you know what this feels like it feels like what the entire presidential election was like until james comey's letter a week before the election that's what it feels like. All the debates were disasters. He couldn't change any narratives. This idea that he could just destroy the media, he couldn't destroy, grab him by the you-know-what. It was James Comey that changed that narrative, not him. And what it's going to take to change this narrative is substantive advancement on policy. Because, see, that's why the left is undermining his presidency. They're concerned about substantive advancement on policy. Todd, your thoughts. But that's the problem. He was so quixotic about that during the campaign, and and his most ardent supporters, Trump cult, uh, they didn't care. I I got in a back and forth on Twitter yesterday with a guy, you know, simply pointing out the obvious about that this is a problem. I I got called out as, you're lucky you're not in front of me right now, or I'd go after you. You're so stupid. When I was just asking this guy to provide evidence for why this isn't a problem when you when you were these are the people that would should be calling him out right now you made promises and so both sides living in these bubbles trump cult who just measures whether you're good by whether you antagonize the people we don't like and the media and the left which measures you know did we are, are we attacking even if we don't know what the hell we're talking about they both think they're america they're not you're listening to steve dace i like you
right, back here with more of the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Neither the left's media and its attempt to, to perform a coup right before our very eyes, nor Trump's adoring, fawning cult. They're not America. The guy got elected president with a 38% approval rating. Let me tell you what America is. Yeah, I'll tell you. You know why I know what America is? Because I'm admitting I'm not America either. So I can see it clearly. America's not movement conservatism. That's not what it is either. That's what I am, but that's not what America is. You know what most of America is? I think this guy's nuts. I think he's crazy. I can't put up with any more Obamacare letters, though. I can't. I, I, I can't pay. I can't, I can't get another rate increase letter in the mail. I can't afford it, guys. I, I can't handle being told it's workplace violence and not Islamic radicalism. I just I can't deal with another four years of that. I can't. I, I, I don't want to stomach four more years of, Bill, of of this woman's husband trolling the White House intern pool. And, and my day is, is, is completely bogged down by sex scandal. That's what most of America did on November 7th, guys. That's what they did. How does a guy with a 38% approval rating get, get elected? Like this. People just essentially, uh, most Americans went in there, eyes closed, and just, I hope this works. Because I know what we're doing doesn't, doesn't work. And I don't, have an, I don't think there's another viable alternative. I just hope this works. I, I, I can't handle another Obamacare letter. I can't do it. I can't afford this. I hope this works. That's what most of America is. And, and that, that most of America right now is watching this. See, w- many of our friends on the right have it wrong. I said a few, we- few weeks ago, it'll be fascinating to see what the left does tactically when they can't control the narrative anymore. Remember we talked about this? We now see what their alternative tactic is. The alternative tactic is fire everything at once. Many on the right are seeing this as a tactical blunder. Well, they're not winning any fights. They're fighting on everything. That actually is tactical genius because they don't have to win any fights. They're in the minority. They don't have to win any fights at all. They just have to be seen fighting. We should remember this. Many of us, many of us were thinking in 2009 and 2010 that Chris Christie was a great conservative warrior because we saw him get up and humiliate a 90-pound teacher union advocate at a town hall on YouTube. Remember? Many of us thought Trey Gowdy was somehow going to be, was Moses, because he, he caught Hillary Clinton in a bold-faced lie in a congressional testimony. Meaning, our guys were in minorities, couldn't do anything, couldn't win anything, but we saw them fighting, so it looked like they were actually doing something. You see what I'm drawing on? They just had to be seen fighting to become stars, and we sent them money, and gave them speaking engagements, and made them our heroes. That's what they had to do. They're just doing the same playbook on the other side. They're, the Sally Cons, their base, they just want to see him. They want to see him fighting, and they're doing that. And by fighting on every front, even though I said the media is irrelevant, is impotent, it's not irrelevant. The Trump White House is behaving like the Bush White House in the Iraq at the end of the Iraq years. It believes it has to react and respond to this all of the time. You have the power of the White House. Change the story. Where's the response to the courts on the immigration thing? They filing an appeal. They rewording the... It's freaking Wednesday night. Wednesday night. Americans are paying attention for 48 more hours, and then it doesn't matter what happens on Saturday or Sunday. You lost the week. That's two weeks in a row now you've lost. 
Where's action on anything? Anything. Republicans in Congress can't put a tax cut bill on his desk. They've only been there for seven damn weeks. And when your most popular ally shows up, don't pull his pants down in the middle of the interview in front of the press. They're feeding the media's narrative. And so the most of America that voted for Trump is like, are we going to build a wall or something? Or, hey, are you, weren't you going to repeal Obamacare? It's March next week, guys. You, know, you see, guys, you know what I'm trying to say? They're exasperated. They don't care. They're not entertained by this. That's not why they did this. They're not his cult. They're not his, they're not his haters. They just want the trains to run on time. All the left has to do is sabo. Throw the sabos in the machines, guys. Take off their shoes and sabotage the machinery and, 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 and grind it down. Because they're not going to be the ones that get the blame for it. They're the minority. Who's going to get the blame for this? The people in charge will. And their inability to get out of their own way with these narratives, to contrive substance on issues, to go on offense... And instead to continue to play with food they've already eaten is hurting them. This is what I meant, Todd, when I talked about wasting political capital. People get sick of you quickly. You only get so many chances in front of them. Use those opportunities. And it's not for, for General Flynn. It's for stuff I actually elected you to do. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like it, you. All right, I'm kind of rambling now. Well, I've been rambling all along. I'm noticeably rambling now. But you're getting a, you get an idea of what I am worried about. I mean, I, Todd and Aaron, I'm looking ahead to a month from now, six months from now. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Anthony Kennedy steps down. That's where the real bloodbath, we said that all along, comes. Based on their inability to get beyond this intelligence community, leakage to the media, fake news, cacophony that that their downward spiral are in. Do you think they're equipped for that kind of a fight? A real fight over a Supreme Court? I guess I don't. I don't. And that's what I'm concerned about. Like it or not, he is the main vehicle for driving our value system. It is what it is. And so therefore, if he fails, it will then be cast upon the rest of us as you failed too. Well, why I now believe you to be dead right about political capital is because of what we've witnessed this week. We, we held our nose or we pushed hard for Trump. Uh, those of us who did, uh, I know we were never Trump here, but we accepted the fact that people thought we needed the strong man. Well, now this strong man's one of his main proxies, the national security, security advisor, was taken out in less than four Weeks. That's not what happens to a real strongman. He goes around and he takes names. People have got to be looking at this. Is this was this a scam all along? Were you lying to us? This is what we were tired of. We were tired of watching people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell get pantsed. We're done with that game. We want a political beating, and we got one, but we were on the end of it again. I'm trying to rack my brain just because that's my nature. I'm just trying to find any 
benefit of the doubt to give these guys, to give the Trump administration, and I can't think of anything. I mean, this is just, uh, this this is really comparatively nothing to what could be happening right now, but they just, they have, uh, they have no ability, it seems like, for, for all of the um, uh, impotence of the media. It seems like the Trump administration still has no idea how to just get out of its own way. I mean, the fact that you have people like Kellyanne Conway, has, who have you uh, brought up before, Steve, uh, they they look right now they they look foolish and i i don't know her as well as you do but uh this is just this is ridiculous i don't understand again i don't understand how you can just be this incompetent for this amount of time i am i i just i don't i i'm at a loss i am i i i don't understand allowing people you've already defeated to set the narrative i i i don't understand why um why you're already bogged down in a bunker type of mentality uh on day 25 there's another of his nominations earlier today republicans in congress said we don't have the votes for who's calling the shots Who, who is it Look at the look at the political personnel around him. Why anybody thought, based on the way he ran the RNC, Reince Priebus, even if you even if you think he's capable, he's a bean counter. Reince Priebus, I used to compare him to an athletic director in the Southeastern Conference. You're, they don't have athletic directors in the SEC. They have frontmen. Bubba the Love Sponge in, uh, upstairs in the in the in the in the private suite is the AD because he's the one writing all the checks. Okay, and ADs are sent out there, and when he opens his mouth, the boosters' words come out. Okay, that's what Ryan's Priebus was at the at the RNC. He wasn't running the show; the donors were. He was their proxy. They needed somebody who could actually be the front man. That's what he was. So even if you think he's good at that, he's a bean counter. He's a facilitator, a manager. Sean Spicer is both unlikable and incompetent. That is a dangerous combination to have in front of the country for a half an hour every day. At first, it was funny watching him get Chris Christie humiliated, but we're on day 25 and realizing now that it's harmful. He's already a parody. He should be fired in five minutes yet, five minutes ago. Problem is, I don't know who they'd get. Who's going to line up to emasculate themselves and humiliate themselves and clown themselves every day in front of millions of people? Four million people a day are watching this because they just want to watch Sean Spicer impersonate Melissa McCarthy impersonating Sean Spicer. You look at Steve Bannon, met him. I've talked to him twice on the radio when he interviewed me. Don't know him at all. It is clear, though, that he is some he has whether you like him or not. He has some acumen of strategy, strategic thinking. I think that's pretty clear to get where he's at. But it's also pretty clear that it's geared towards his own personal views of the world, not necessarily in a generic political sense. So who is it? Who is it? Is it the son-in-law, Jared Kushner? What are his qualifications? Other than the fact he gave you grandchildren, what, what, what gives you the, any idea whatsoever he is equipped to swim in these kinds of waters? Hell, daddy has to step in to defend his daughter against Nordstrom's. Doesn't she have a husband to do that for her? Who's calling the shots? 
Who makes him better? Who makes him better? Who is it? You tell me. I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is. But if we're having these sorts of conversations on day 25, there is no honeymoon period. That's all gone now. That's completely gone. I am concerned. I am concerned. This needs to be successful. If it is not, it will be very costly for all of us, whether we like him or not. That's the reality. So when we had this conversation, when I came in here Monday night before the show, this is almost verbatim, Todd, what you and I discussed before we went on the air Monday night. Am I still overreacting now? Do you think? Well, I didn't think you were overreacting at the time. I simply said we should pretty much try to juggle three grenades instead of uh, four because we'll know when that time comes when we need to do that. It is definitely time in light of Flynn being picked off the way he did. Again, I go back to what I said before. If your main qualification was that you were the Incredible Hulk who wasn't going to get pushed around and one of your most important hires got pushed around this easily doesn't matter that's by exactly who. that's right that's that's the problem and that now that's why some of his loyalists said that's why he shouldn't have gotten rid of him but but why do you let a guy who has these kinds of weaknesses expose you in the first place are you picking fellow strongmen or are you just yes. picking toadies especially because Flynn's not an isolated incident they nearly lost DeVos they're going to lose the, the labor secretary guy more in a moment you're listening to Steve Dace I like you to talk more about this next hour because there's just there's too much to not talk about but as we close out hour one here i'm going to bring something on the air that i don't think we've ever talked about publicly but uh, privately a, a friend of mine asked me during the election what is it about this election that you're the most afraid of and i uh, i pondered it for a second because i'm not fear-based naturally anyway you guys get a ch- have gotten a chance to work with me now for the last 15 months and it's probably accurate i'm just not i'm a, and it doesn't mean i lack fear uh, i'm I, i'm not fear-based my fear is 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 being afraid so i have a tendency to go into the fear just because i hate being held hostage to it sometimes though fear is a good thing stops you from doing stupid things that i have done in the past because i didn't listen to my fear but um, I hadn't really thought of this election in that context. And so I took a few minutes and this was the answer that I gave him. My biggest fear in this election is that after spending the last few years teaching Americans through Barack Obama, that they have placed way too much trust in government. And government makes for a poor Messiah, for a poor Savior. That God is going to do the exact same thing for another few years through Donald Trump. And the reason that is my fear is because, see, let me tell you, let you guys in a dirty little secret. Even though I've never agreed with the whole God's anointed and all that other language, I really would like you to be right. Because if my greatest fear is true, 
We're not riding off into the sunset, guys. We're getting spanked. That's my, that has been my fear about what happened last year all along. Is that I saw a group of people decide that this, this form of government as Messiah under Barack Obama didn't work. So let's try a new form of government as Messiah under Donald Trump and maybe it will. And God's not really big on that whole sharing his glory with another thing. So I, that, that's my fear about what really happened here in November. I hope I'm wrong. I want to be wrong. But I, I don't know how many more times I can say it this hour. I am really worried. Because we're, we're now talking, uh, we're, we're beyond, see, we're not even talking about the stuff on the policy that we disagree with them on. We're talking about the functional ability to do the job. And that's the thing, people will forgive betrayal on ideology. They will even forgive corruption. They will not forgive incompetence. Corrupt politicians can still make the trains run on time. Those who ideologically betray you on something you care about can give you a freebie later to own to get back into your good graces. But if someone's just incompetent and cannot do the job, that that is never forgiven regardless of their ideology or character. So what you're saying is the art of the deal can start any time now, huh? Uh, yes, please. Let's get that going, can we? Please, yes. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, two more days. Friday's our last day here on SRN. They have been uh, tremendous to us the last 15 months. We are very gracious. Actually, they've been very gracious. We are very grateful, I should say. Uh, but uh, alas, um, Conservative Review actually owns our content, and they are calling us home. So on February the 27th, we will join the talented roster at CRTV, which includes Mark Stein, Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Steven Crowder. This will be a daily show. You'll be able to watch it. Yes, there will be a podcast version for subscribers as well. I don't know for sure that it will be there day one, but it is being worked on as we speak. The new and just as mediocre Steve Day show begins on CRTV on February the 27th. You don't want to miss an episode. Well, Steve, your last show on Salem's the 17th. You don't go to CRTV to the 27th. What gives? Well, it takes a few days, guys. You know, new technology, new studio, all that stuff's got to get uh, uh, installed. So you cut us a little bit of slack where that's concerned. We need to shower now and stuff like that. That's true. I mean, I, I, I someone sent me a, a text that just simply said cream rinse in the line. And so I'm headed to the store after we're done tonight to figure out exactly what that is. So, um. And I guess you guys are going to find out just how many hoodies I actually own once and for all. America was wondering who owns more hoodies, Steve Dace or Bill Belichick. You're about to find out. All right. Uh, I want to carry over the conversation we were having last hour about where things stand 
with the Trump presidency. And I want to draw a, a, a recent uh, pop culture sports analogy to kind of paint you a picture for where I think we are and if it gets fixed, where it could go. When George Steinbrenner bought the New York Yankees, they were a disaster. Uh, they were the dominant sports, Ameri- North, them and the Celtics were the dominant North American sports franchise for the first half or, or so of the 20th century, well into the uh, early 1960s. He had the great dynasty uh, that continued into the, into the Maris years uh, and the Mantle years, and then they fell on hard times. And they were really a moribund franchise. The force of his personality reinvented them. He was a total bull in a china shop. In fact, if you remember George Steinbrenner, his personality and Donald Trump's very similar. Also made people uneasy with his willingness to say what he thought. I'm, I'm always, I'm, I, and I say this about myself too, and I wish I would not. Those of us who claim to tell it like it is, be very suspicious. Nobody really tells it like it is. Okay? Because we're not God. We are willing to say what we think. See the difference? There's a distinction between telling it like it is and saying what you think. Just because we're saying what we think doesn't mean we're telling it like it is. It's what we think. It's not always right. But Steinbrenner was a force of nature in Major League Baseball. What happened? In the latter half of the 1970s, the Yankees became the dominant sports franchise in America again. And then they fell on hard times once more. What happened with Steinbrenner? Same owner. Same owner owner who the force of his persona took them from a moribund franchise to the dominant team in, in American sports again in the 70s. We get into the 80s now. Made a World Series in 81. Then starts thinking, you know what? That organization we built to rebuild the Yankees from the ground up. To have a minor league system that produces the Ron Guidry's of the world. We're just going to go buy Dave Winfield's now. We're going to go get free agents. Ricky Henderson's. Steve Kemp's. You're surprised I know some of these names, aren't you, Todd's looking at me like... Oh, no. I've, Todd's looking at me like I've never been more attracted to you than I am right now, right? Oh, it's a different look than that. <laughs> <laughs> See, Todd's the big baseball guy. I think he's surprised I'm pulling all these names out of the, uh, out of the backside of the old keister there. But, uh, I mean, every Saturday morning, man, Johnny Bench and the Baseball Bunch. Oh, what this a show. Week, this week in baseball. Let's just talk about that. Okay? Every Saturday. And I didn't miss the NBC game of the week when I was a kid every week. All right? So I know this era really well. It's what I grew up on. All of a sudden, Reggie Jackson goes for Mr. October. Dave Winfield becomes Mr. May, right? And, you know, they had Don Mattingly, who was Donnie Baseball. They'd never won anything when he was there. Didn't win any division titles. Didn't win any pennants. They were usually, though, pretty good. They were almost always over 500. But, you know, you had those years in the American League East where it was a different team every year. You had the Orioles win it one year, the Tigers the next year, the Blue Jays the next year, the Red Sox the year after that. Then you had the Indians. Guess who never won it? Yankees never had their turn. And that was when it was the by far the best division in baseball. You had to win 100 games, win that division practically every year. See, what had happened is there was no infrastructure between Steinbrenner's personality and the organization. So the organization became his personality. We're watching this happen again in the NFL with Jerry Jones. 
I mean, he has radicalized, radically changed the NFL. That's why they just put him in the Hall of Fame. He's made those owners so much money. They hadn't thought about licensing deals and, and naming rights to stadiums. These are things that when he started doing this in the late 80s, when he took over, everybody bristled at it, and now they all do it. And that's where they're making enough money from TV as it is. But the real billions are coming from these secondary markets that Jerry Jones envisioned. And Jerry Jones came in, bull in a china shop, fired everybody, got rid of Tom Landry. Remember how controversial that was when we were kids? Yes, I do. When the, when the boy it was like, the world was going to end. How dare you fire the hat? And he puts it in this cocky college coach that he puts in because they were in Arkansas together. They were teammates. This cocky coach from Miami who ends up being an all-time great coach. They win a couple of Super Bowls. And then after he gets rid of him, he brings in another Hall of Fame coach, Barry Switzer. They win another one. But what's happened since then? They had one period where they got really close with Bill Parcells, but they couldn't last because Parcells was his own man and Jones wanted a yes man. So they've gone through this rotisserie list of coaches. They've kept the one that they have now. Why? Because essentially Jerry Jones coaches the team. Even He's the only owner in the NFL that does a post-game press conference every week. Comes down from the, from the owner's box and meets with the media. Yeah, they went out and win 13 games this year. What happens? Flame out first game of the playoffs. They've done this three or four times. I think they've won one playoff game since night, since their last Super Bowl win. The Cowboys have one playoff game, I think. Maybe it's two. And their last Super Bowl win, it was the first Super Bowl I ever watched with my wife, so we're going back over 20 years now. Why? Jerry Jones is the general manager. He's the de facto head coach. There is no organizational infrastructure between him and his personality. Same thing that happened to the Yankees under George Steinbrenner. And it was only when Steinbrenner got himself involved in some nefarious activity and Faye Vincent, the uh, the commissioner at the time, temporarily took the team away from him. Maybe it was even Bart Giamatti that did this. Remember that, Todd? Yes. They took the team away from him. And that forced the Yankees to build an, organi- an organization. And so when Steinbrenner came back, this organization had gone out there and they'd found some guys that they ended up building the next generation, the Bernie Williams. They ended up building the next generation of, of Yankee dominance around so that now the organization is there to identify, procure, develop talent. And now you bring back the force of his personality. You know, the old George Costanza, you know, Seinfeld episodes where now you want this guy who demands we win at everything because he's going to put expectations on the organization you have to develop results. But see, now you have a layer of infrastructure between him and his personality. And then what what do you see? A bumper crop, a new a new era of dominance. 125 win teams. From 1996 to 2003, how many World Series did they win? Three, four, five? A couple others that were, in the, that were classics, like the one the year last to Arizona that they lost. Every year you knew you had to go through the New York Yankees during that era. Every year. See, I think this is an analogy for what's happening already here. The Republican Party was a moribund franchise. It had lost the popular vote in five of the last six presidential elections, still lost the popular vote in this one. Had not had anybody get over 300 electoral college votes since 1988. Hadn't won Pennsylvania since when? 88. Hadn't won Wisconsin since 84. Hadn't won Iowa once since 88. Hadn't won Michigan since 1988. It had become a moribund franchise. Like him or not, 
the power of Trump's persona on some level reinvigorated this franchise. I think we would all agree that's indisputable, correct? Agreed. And what happens? They're back on the map. They win again. And now they run everything in Washington. But we're now at the point, just like we were with Steinbrenner, there is no organizational boundary between his personality and the brand. And so why do you have to have this organizational infrastructure? Because he's a brand. He need, you need to be able to produce results. And that's what they don't have. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. See, see, nobody is the total picture or the total package. Maybe the closest I've seen in any form of leadership is Nick Saban. Meaning the guy that can be the face of the program, can run the program, know all the details, coach every position. It's, uh, that is a rarity. I mean, that is a rarity. Most people are extraordinarily gifted in a few of these areas, which means they need a team around them of people who are gifted in the other ones. Trump's giftedness is being the force of nature. It's not being a scout. Just as George Steinbrenner's giftedness was, I know how to make money to, to have enough revenue to give you the resources you need to produce results. But I don't know how to scout. I don't know how to identify free agents. I don't know, I don't know sabermetrics when this 28 year old guy in the year four of this deal, it's going to be, we're going to be hamstrung by this contract and not be able to get out of it. That's, that's what I need Brian Cashman and his team to do. Who is Brian Cashman and his team for Trump's Steinbrenner? Who is it? And they better figure this out really quick. Because as impatient as people were with the New York Yankees, their favorite ball club, it's like dog years in the U.S. presidency compared to that. So who is responsible? Trump's Trump's clearly not the detail guy. That's okay. It's great football coaches in the Hall of Fame weren't detail guys. He's clearly the brand. The force of nature that can upend and disrupt narratives, change them around. So, well, then, Steve, if he can do that, why can't he do that here? Because what is required to change narratives in the White House is not a shtick as much as results. You need something to sell. The campaign is over now. Now it's about govern. And now I need to, I, now I, I, I need Obamacare repealed. I need good judges. That's why I was so excited to see the stagecraft they pulled off for the Gorsuch announcement. Why do you think the first thing I led off with that night when we were live was the stagecraft of that announcement? Because that shows there's somewhere in there people have the ability to put the infrastructure in place to put to put walls on his house, on his framework, to put flesh and blood on on the on his skeleton. You know what I'm trying to say? To to take his brand and make it known. They're needed now. He can't. I hate to sound like those commercials from when uh, from ten years ago, but Leon can't do everything. Remember those? Okay. 
Leon, those Budweiser commercials where the guy comes off the field, well, you fumbled four times. I mean, I can't recover my own fumbles. Leon can't do everything. Remember those? Love those commercials, okay? But Leon can't do everything, guys. So, Republicans in Congress, gentlemen, right now, have got to realize their fates are intertwined. Start putting legislation on his desk. Immigration legislation, anti-regulatory legislation, tax cut legislation, Obamacare repeal legislation. There needs to be a steady stream of this for the next few months. They've got to do their part. They're part of the infrastructure. Someone on his team has got to be a strategic thinker. Trump needs to give his people permission to draw a a line in the sand between his personality and public policy. So they don't have to go out there and use the official White House seal to defend whatever his current personal meanderings are. And that can just be, let Trump be Trump. You, You guys run the White House. And that way, Trump's Trump's antics become like Bill Belichick's. Why does Bill Belichick stand up there and talk like this, guys? Why does he do this? Why does he wear hoodies? He makes $8 million a year. He's got a girlfriend who's a 16 on a scale of 1 to 10. Do you think he got her because he talks like this? No, guys. Anybody who knows him tells you he's a crack-up and completely hilarious. So why does he behave like this? It's all a shtick. Because what's everybody talk about? Belichick. You know what they're not talking about? Hey, don't you guys feel the pressure of repeating? Don't you guys feel the pressure of of, be, of being number one all the time? Nobody ever talks. You ever seen a team win as much that has to answer as few questions about how hard it is to keep winning than the Patriots? You know how the, you know why you know why that is? Because Belichick has set himself up as a separate personality. It's all on him. And over here is the football team. I watch Jim Harbaugh does this for my Michigan team. Some Jim is a little crazy, but a lot of this is a shtick. Because you know what you were talking about when you're talking about him? The fact that Michigan's been a mediocre program for a decade. You're not talking about that anymore, are you? And the force of his personality lifted them up. The force of Trump's personality took the Republican Party into national prominence again. But the force of his personality is going to drag it down, gentlemen, just as Steinbrenner's nearly did for the Yankees. If they don't come up with infrastructure to produce results, people will start stop seeing him as a brand They'll start seeing him as a caricature, and they will turn on him. Well, the problem is, in his defense, actually, the bench is terrible. The, the, you, you mentioned Congress. It's as unlikely as many of those people in Congress come to his defense, or the, quite frankly, the defense of almost any other president who's not in the same K Street bed as they are. That's what he has to really overcome, and he and we we in many ways this was a a bet that was doomed to failure from the beginning, was it not? I mean, this was Donald Trump did not have it in him to truly set an agenda beyond boilerplate. He he, he, no, absolutely, it's not his strength, and and there's also no bench to do it for him. No, that that bench wasn't there. I I believed long with Donald Trump and or what conservatives for a long time. You're right. So let me give you an example of what it what what it looks like when what I'm saying is there a precedent that what I'm saying could actually happen? Yes. The immigration issue was one that outside of a few of us on our own side, we were losing that argument. Why do you think Rubio ran off to do amnesty? 
And we were being called nativist by people on our own side. We had all these arguments, right? It was a fringe issue even among the right. The power of his personality took that issue to the mainstream. No one argues for amnesty anymore. Changed the whole thing overnight. That's an example of what I'm talking about. When the, now, how come he could do that? Because we had the infrastructure in place to explain to him what anchor baby syndromes were, to the point he even tried to stand up in front of 30 million people in a debate once and defend it clumsily, but he tried it. He tried it, didn't he? We saw him do it. That's what I mean. Where is the infrastructure? It's my buddy Daniel Horowitz says this to me on the phone whenever we talk about this privately all the time. If we had a real movement with someone of Trump's personality, we could, we mm-hmm. could run this thing. I mean, we could just, we could just own it crush it the problem is we are limited we can't even use the advantages of trump's personality because we don't have a movement to provide the organizational infrastructure which is what i hear you saying but we have we have seen it before we saw it on the immigration issue and we need to see more of that aaron if we don't i don't think this will work yeah and what's what i'm i'm finally learning about trump and maybe i'm a little bit slow and late to the party here it seems like in his economy uh in his own personal economy it doesn't really matter how people are talking about him, how anybody's talking about him. Yes, he has a thin skin, it seems like, and he really does. But in his economy, as long as he's being talked about, that's what matters to him. So I think that's maybe part of the reason why it's seemed like the rest of his administration is being so lazy and not actually doing the things or something like what you have laid out for them to do. I think it's just because he doesn't really care. He's all in all the papers, he's on all the shows. At this point, this is his dream come true. Boy, I hope you're wrong about that. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. I'm for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. It is the nightly buzz where we get you caught up on the things we didn't have time to get to earlier in the show. While we were trying to save the Trump presidency, day 25, an hour from the last hour and a half, these are the headlines that are trending on either your social media, the water cooler where you work, as told to us by our producer Aaron. We will probably overreact with the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. First story on Tuesday and a striking acknowledgement that uh, humanity is on the cusp of genetically modified children. A panel of the National Academy of Sciences, the nation's source of blue ribbon advice on science policy, recommended that germline modification of human beings is permitted in the future in certain narrow circumstances to prevent the birth of children with serious diseases. Well, tell me why, outside of a biblical worldview, tell me why this is wrong. Can you tell me, Todd? Why it's wrong? Tell me, why, of a, tell me why, outside of a biblical worldview, this would uh, be wrong. I can't for the same reasons. I couldn't tell you many things about uh, science. It, it fits perfectly with uh, notions of uh, survival of the fittest. Yeah, this is pure eugenics, eugenics, utilitarianism. This is this is the ultimate. It, it does. It, this makes total sense to do this. It only makes sense. Not. It only doesn't make sense if those are the things that were not. And ten years ago, it would have been. Uh, it would have been harder 
to have that conversation about let's you know let's be grown ups here let's talk about the consequences but we would have had perhaps imagine a little harder you know again we're living in the period where we're arguing about bathrooms we don't need to imagine the levels of crazy something as well intentioned as this might go it will go to crazy land it's already been eight years since the Great Recession, yet the United States economy has just been inching along with its productivity flagging and millions being locked out of the labor market. One critical underlying factor for this lack of economic dynamism has been the starting or the startling decline of America's economic freedom, which is an unfortunate legacy, as we know, of Barack Obama's eight-year presidency. The Heritage Foundation's 2017 Index of Economic Freedom, an annual global study that compares countries' entrepreneurial environments, highlights the urgent need for the U.S. to change course. For the ninth time since 2008, America has lost ground. Listen to this. According to the 2017 Index, the U.S. ranks 17th out of 180 rated economies, lagging behind other comparable advanced economies such as Switzerland, Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Uh, the late Milton Friedman used to say, you can have open borders or a welfare state, but you cannot have both. Uh, and I bring that up because there's a certain practicality. I don't want to discuss this theoretically. Let's just discuss it practically. We, we could have the coercive, invasive state that we have now um, with a better economy than we have now. But just as, just as Milton Friedman Todd said you can't have open borders and a welfare state, we want a coercive, invasive state with deficit spending at the exact same time. Meaning we don't want to, we don't want to, we want to be able to spend more than we actually have. So if we're going to have a coercive, invasive state and then have no limits on what we're actually willing to spend, then there's no way out of this. We can do one or the other. Now there is another possibility. If we're not, if, if we're not in, in, in a, in a place morally and culturally, we're, substan- we're substantially reducing the size of debt and, and the scope of government is going to politically play, which is where, where I think we are. I, I'm not going to lie to you guys, folks. It's where I think we are. It's not where I wish we were. It's just where I think we are. Well, then your only other option, then, in order to avoid what Aaron just described, if we're not, if we're not, going, to, if, if we're not going to seriously rein in the size and scope of government, but you guys all want big government helping you, um, while we're racking up huge deficits. Well, the only way that we can get out of the economic uh, stagnation that Aaron just described is we have to grow the economy. Where does the econo- where's the economy going to grow-, to grow from? Well, there's only two sectors it can grow from, okay? One is public and the other is private. The problem with trying to grow it out of the public sector is where's the public sector get the money to grow from? Us. The private sector. So we're right back to where we just started, which means we're going to have to come up with policies that will grow the private sector, which is where new revenue and therefore new jobs, new technologies, uh, new economies of scale are actually created. And, and you can have all the Austrian Keynesian arguments you want. They're irrelevant. Really, they're just irrelevant. Practically, this is where we're at. It's do or do not. There is no try, Todd. That's that. This is this is simple math now. It's not even philosophy oh, anymore. And, and so, by the way, regarding everything we talked about so far and Trump, where is this? At least for 15 minutes every day, a focus on this: what you're doing, how you're beating the drum, how you're changing. It can't just be the EO photo op and then moving on. We're not feeling it yet. We should be feeling something. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you. 
All right, back here on the Steve Dave Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we've got two more shows after tonight here on SRN. Then we head over to CRTV. And we are excited about our move there and uh, joining the outstanding team with Mark Levin, uh, Michelle Malkin, Stephen Crowder, uh, and also uh, the great Mark Stein. Although I think I just gave Mark Stein Mark Levin's nickname, but they're both named Mark, so I was close. I was close. So over the last couple of days, as we get set to make this move, uh, several of you have asked me questions. And there hasn't been as many of these as I thought there were going to be, because I think that is that is emblematic of the fact that people recognize this is how the technology is changing how people do what I do for a living. But there's a few of you that have some legit questions. I thought um, if you didn't get a chance to see some of my answers on my Facebook wall earlier today, I thought I'd take just a few minutes tonight and answer because I'm, here are some of the questions some of you are asking me. Uh, a few of you, few of you are asking me uh, about. Um, uh, you know, why would I leave commercial radio for a subscription uh, platform? Are we going to limit our audience? Uh, why don't we follow in the footsteps of what guys like Rush Limbaugh did when they built their radio empires, etc.? Uh, and, and you know, why do you how do you, why do you expect me to pay for a show that I used to get for free? Here, let me stop. Let me start with that one because the other ones are really good questions. This one's not. <laughs> All right, this is not a good question. The show's never been free. That is Bernie Sanders, college is free. Don't you know someone still has to pay for all the curriculum, tutorial, the, the, the professors, the buildings on campus? It's not free. Somebody paid for all of that. Think, did you, did you, you show up here, you do this for nothing? Uh, no, the last check cleared. So. Todd, are you working Penub? <laughs> you working for, you working Penub, buck, uh, Buckwheat? I'm going to go cash my paycheck uh, this afternoon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not working Penub. All right, so none of us are here. Somebody paid for this. Advertisers did. So the expectation would be that you would then prosper our advertisers in exchange for them footing the bill for this mediocre monstrosity. Understand when you tell me, why do you expect me to pay for a show I used to get for free? Here's what you are really saying. I totally mooched off your advertisers, never really substantively supported the show, and now I can't believe that you're asking me to take to do my part in order to get it. That's really what you're saying. That's really what you're saying. It's like showing up at church on a Sunday and the, and the doors are all closed. You're like, where is everybody? I came to hear a message. Well, we couldn't afford to pay the bills. Well, church is free. Well, wh- why do you think they, they passed that plate around at the end of the service every week? Nothing in life is free. Not even the gospel is free. Came at a very high price. Somebody laid down their life for that. Nothing in this whole universe is free. Nothing. I am dismayed at the amount of people who are communicating this to me, which is which is really not that many. I'm just dismayed that it's actually anybody. <laughs> I mean, especially given who I think our audience is. It's not free. Never has been free. Someone's paid for this. It's how we feed our families. So, so that's not a good question. All right. Now, the rest of your questions, though, are pretty good. So let me take a few minutes to answer them. Um, Rush Limbaugh is the reason we all have our phony baloney jobs. When he came along in the late 1980s, the technology we had today didn't exist, which meant people weren't conditioned that they got to listen to what they wanted to listen to when they wanted to listen to it. 
noon Eastern, it was appointment radio. You had to be there or you missed it. It's not the world we live in today now. Podcasts, DVRs, everything's on demand. You can listen to whatever you want. I'm a SiriusXM subscriber. And by the way, SiriusXM is the number one radio market in the country now. Subscription service. I love my SiriusXM. College Sports Nation, that's my channel. That's my oasis. I, that's how I get away from this every day. You guys sometimes even hear me listen to it when I come in here at night to do the show. That's, my, that, that's how I get, get out of it, what we do for a living. When I go to the gym to work out in the afternoon, my favorite show on College Sports Nation runs from 9 to noon in the morning, my time. I listen to it every day in the afternoons at the gym, on demand, when I can listen to it. Without commercials. Because I don't work out from 9 a.m. to noon. I work out in the afternoons. And I don't want to miss my favorite show on College Sports Nation, so I listen to it when I want. And I'm not alone. More and more people are doing this. This is how the technology has changed things. If if Rush tried to do today what he was able to do in the late 1980s, he could not do it this way today. Things just change. People are showing, by the way, they're much more inclined to pay for something unique that they want. If they were, they'd rather buy the HBO app, they'd rather buy the Showtime app, the ESPN app, Netflix, Vudu, Hulu, Amazon Prime. Where do you think Netflix comes up with the money to come up with Stranger Things and all the shows they have that are just killing it? Cost millions of dollars to produce this programming. They're coming out with another Marvel television series next month, Iron Fist. These are huge, big budget. And they're doing 12, 13, 14 episodes, and it can be one to three to four million dollars an episode production. Where does the money come from? Enough people want to pay them $10 a month to get content that they want to get access to, to get access to it when they want to access it. That's where the market's going. Rush nor anybody else, no matter how talented they were, how much money they had backing them, could do what they're doing today what they did to start this 30 years ago. Rush had investors bring him out to New York to launch his show. They wouldn't bring him to New York now. They'd take him to SiriusXM probably. That's where things have changed. So that is just the evolution of the technology we had today. I understand some of you won't be able to subscribe. I make a good living, but I, I can't even get my wife to agree to let me subscribe to everything I want to subscribe to. And that's okay. We don't begrudge that. We're going to still produce daily free content via social media, uh, we'll produce daily Facebook Live videos and everything else that you will be able to still engage with us, and we'll keep that conversation going, because even though none of us are doing this for free, money's not the primary reason we're doing it either. So we're going to provide free content, because we want to keep this conversation going. But the reality is, guys, this is where the format is evolving. And then beyond the technological evolution, there's also a financial reality. And that is, speaking of Rush Limbaugh, our universe changed when he called Sandra Fleck a slut. And over the last five years, we have had a situation where major corporate advertisers just aren't buying our radio shows, no matter how many millions of listeners we have. That's just the reality. And so that's why you're going to see more platforms like CRTV, The Blaze, Daily Wire. You're going to see more platforms like it for that reason. Listening to Steve Dace. I like you.
All right, do you guys have anything here as we close out hour two you want to add to just a couple of uh, frequently asked questions that I was just uh, responding to about our pending move? And overall, uh, actually, I thought we'd get more of this. Overall, the reaction's been very positive, but there are people. And and why? So, Steve, there's there's not that much reaction while you're responding because we care about all you guys. We don't want to lose any of you. Mm hmm. You know, so we're going to come up with ways to hold on to all of you if we can. But there are certain technological realities, certain economic realities, not the least of which being that conservative review is who owns our content. They have their own channel. It only makes sense that if they have a product that has built up enough of a following where they can then take that product and, and make all the money off of it that since they're paying for it anyway and not share that money for, with somebody else, why wouldn't they do so? We would all do that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what conservative review is doing here with CRTV uh, and our move over there. Is there anything we haven't answered that has come up that you guys think we need to address before we turn the page and move on? No, but we're all thinking long term about this. Uh, In the short term, we do understand the frustration about people who might not be able to connect with us uh, right away. But no one should think that uh, in the short term, like we have found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, we are all taking a long term uh, gamble, trying to read the tea leaves. This is a very smart reading of the tea leaves. Um, But this is about the sustainability and the enjoyment of this Long term. Yeah, I, I think we are rapidly approaching an era. It won't matter how many radio towers you own. It won't matter how many watts their signal is. Everybody, just like you can't buy a TV nowadays that's not HD and doesn't have all the Netflix and Google Chrome widgets already built in, soon you won't buy a car that doesn't have TuneIn, iHeart, all that stuff in there. And and that's going to make how many stations you're on, how what kind of wattage those stations that's have. That's a great point. All mm-hmm. that's irrelevant now. Everybody can be listened to anywhere, provided they have access to one of these online entry points. And CRTV is going to be one of those main ones. Basically, you're you're describing we're living in the world just before we got the smartphone. Yes, that's exactly right. That what's happened is right now you own the flip phone that allows you to take pictures and to text. Right. Okay. What is coming next year is the smart is your the, the iPhone's going to land in your lap and every and the world's going to change. Four years ago, we would not have made this move, even though we knew the technology was going here and eventually anyway. But now we're close enough to that launching point that when one of these primary platforms that is going to take advantage of this technology, they only have so many seats to sit in, guys. And when the music stops, if you don't have a chair to sit in, you're like all the you're like most of the newspaper reporters we grew up reading. Most of the you're like Newsweek magazine, which is a nothing now. That so this is good. CRTV is going to be one of these main online entry points to access this content in this new environment. So yeah, I suppose I could have put up more of a fight, even though they own the rights. But but understanding that if they're offering us a seat before the music stops playing, we would be fools not to take it. I mean, Levin, just doing his show alone, they have a massive audience there. So we're not going to lose as much audience on the front end of this, I think, as people think. And I think we'll gain quite a bit on the back end by the time it's done. Hour three is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like it, you.
are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2. No, it's Hour 3. Time flies when you're having fun here on the Steve Day Show. Back with Hour 3 here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Worldview Wednesday coming up here in about 15 minutes. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, indeed it is time for three questions when we test Aaron see how he's doing with that learner's permit that he just acquired we let him have control he gets to take the wheel drive the vehicle at least for this segment he gets to ask the questions around here he can ask us anything that he wants nothing is off limits but he has to answer the same questions he asks of us thank you steve and if you have a question you would like to have asked or considered to be asked on this segment you can email me aaron at stevedace.com question one if the left really cared about all the minorities they say they represent what would they be doing differently right now Number one thing they would be doing differently, and I think you're going to hear me saying this a lot on this show, um, they would be putting the interests of everyday Americans ahead of cultural Marxism. Because what's happening on the left now is proof that we're right when we tell you no man can rise above his own worldview. They are acting in ways. You know, I had somebody say to me today on Facebook when uh, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, most of the stuff that Trump has done from a policy standpoint, we would cheer if it came from any other Republican in the first few days. And they said, yeah, I think his motivation is just that he knows he needs us right now. Well, I don't really care what his motivation is. Which you, well, I mean, I do, but... If I, let me rephrase that, I do care what your motivation is, right? Because I'm a Christian, and the Bible is clear: God ultimately judges us on our motivations. But from a political standpoint, if I can't get you to do what I think is right because we share a common value system, the next best thing is that you do what is what, what you think the people want because they're ultimately in charge, and get rid of you uh, if 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 you don't. And so if that's his motivation, it's not the one I would prefer, but it's better than uh, he doesn't has a tin ear and doesn't listen to us at all. What I'd be very concerned about on the left is when I see union people applauding Trump and things of that nature, I know why conservatives are despondent over that. The people on the left should be despondent about it, too, but for different reasons. What's happening is he is exposing the fact that, that you really don't care about the average American. You, you, you care about imposing cultural Marxism by hook or by crook. That's really what you care about. And, and, and I think that's what has transpired in this 
election. I think it's what transpired in 2010 and 2014 when Obama wasn't on the ballot. I think it transpired again in 2016 when Obama wasn't on the ballot. There are Dem voters and there are Obama voters. There are racial minorities that Obama brought out in droves because they believed in his life story, because he had lived the life in the, the, the upbringing without a single mom, coming from a poor family. He had he had lived their biography. They identified with that. And because he's likable. So they related to him. Remove the human Obama factor from the equation in the last three elections. And what have we seen? They got annihilated in 2010. They did win in 2012 when he was on the ballot. They got creamed even worse in 2014 than they did in 2010. And they just lost again in 2016. Three of the last four elections the left has lost badly when he was not the face of their movement. What does that mean? It means their issues, where they stand on the issues, can't stand on its own. They needed his persona to make people focus focus on that rather than where they truly stand. Remove his persona. Hillary doesn't have that kind of charisma. And now it really is about, oh, you want to turn us into Europe. I I don't want to be Europe. I thought we fought a revolution to not be Europe. We want to be America, but thanks. That's why, even though I didn't like much of the content in his speech, 65% of Americans said today they loved his inaugural speech because it was a bunch of pro-American sentiments. And that's, that's the number one thing the left has to do, Todd. They have to put the needs of everyday Americans ahead of their own cultural Marxism, but they may not be capable of doing that. And as it applies specifically, you mentioned minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be talking a lot more about the church and the family and fatherhood. It, it, it is demonstra- demonstrably true that if uh, you took care of the fatherhood issue in the inner cities, many, if not most, of the inner city problems would go away. I mean, we, li- black literacy rates have plummeted along with the plummeting uh, of the presence of uh, fatherhood. The, the, the data, the science that the left claims to love so much, they just ignore on this. You want a miracle? I give you one. Talk about that. As you pointed out to me in the first uh, segment of the show, actually, Steve, uh, that Donald Trump doesn't have the worldview to use the bully pulpit the way that we uh, would like him to use in terms of starting an argument. If the left really cared about minorities, well, I, I, I think I need to challenge the premise of my own question here. They don't have a worldview capable of caring about anything other than their own power or the power of the government. Because as Todd, and I agree with what Todd just pointed out, if they really cared about minorities, they would be focusing on the family. They would be focusing on fatherhood. But then um, I don't think they're capable of at least recognizing, or if they do recognize that those are where the issues or those are where the problem parts are, they're not admitting that themselves. So I don't think they're capable of actually caring for actually caring for anybody other than themselves and the government. Uh, Question two, what's the biggest difference between men and women nobody talks about? All of them. Uh, Well, depending on who's the nobody. I mean, I think average Americans talk about this stuff all the time or people with uh, that may not that might be extraordinary Americans, but have the right worldview. Talk about the obvious differences emotionally, physically, um, all of the time. I I think um, I, I think it's in the elite circles of thought that have totally bought into progressivism where they've lost these things. I don't really think there's anything we're missing out on at all. Do you? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think there's anything that you could say about the differences between men and women. If you grab the average American off the street, they're like, that's oh, news to me. I didn't, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even talking physiology. 
And I'm talking, you know, um, you know, from a from a psychological or a soul perspective. I, I don't think there's much out there that would be shocking to the average American, but it might shock the faculty on both coasts, Todd. Oh yeah, I mean, there's just so much about this issue that regular people, if they're just being absolutely honest, yeah, they get even some people uh, on the left, which is why the 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 links that the the crazies of in, in the progressive world will go to try to shush that to knock about it, talk about it, to provide a different narrative is is so robust i mean there is there's scientific studies that uh the, there's a hormone that women exude uh when they are uh having babies uh, when they are having uh, sex and when they are breastfeeding. I mean, there is science involved that there's j- women are just in- so wired differently. And my point being there is that's why when bad relationships, when they have uh, sex before marriage, they are just they become emotionally bonded to bad people the way they might be bonded to their very infant just through their physiology. I mean, that is remarkable. Uh, but we won't have conversations like that because we need to believe that a man can become a woman. Yeah, I think it's. I think I would agree with both of you. Um, the fact that these differences are so stark that um, you know you could posit that the average man or woman on the street uh, could spot any of those differences. I think that uh, that says all that needs to be said. Question three: If the rules of football were changed, and I'm talking about the only football here, were changed to where <laughs> there were 12 men on the field at the same time for both sides of the ball instead of 11. What position on offense and defense should the 12th man play? I wouldn't advocate allowing this in the first place, except in, if you wanted to propose that that is done on, um, on say, punts, where the punter, therefore, is just free to come in and kick and not be a part of the physical play. But um, it's the beautiful game, and it's just right at 11 on 11. So um, I wouldn't advocate bringing a 12th player in at all, I would advocate scourging the person who would advocate that, Todd. <laughs> Which would be Aaron. Uh, but, but you Not also advocating. You, I'm <laughs> just asking the question, you, you know. You also, uh, I don't know if you realize, you just took the beautiful game. I know, you see what I did soccer. there? I was wondering if you were going to notice that. Are you yes. appropriating that? Yes. Hmm, that's nice. Wow. Someone should write a book about to reversing your opponent's premise and using it against them. Indeed, yes. Both, both teams should have somebody just standing there protesting the existence of uh, instant replay. I would say an additional oh. line. See what I did there? An additional line. I played eight-man football in high school, so I'm, I'm totally down, with, uh, down, down to clown with different uh, numbers of players on the field. Yeah, I mean, sp- schools that are small, that, mm-hmm. that, that don't have the numbers, eight-man can be exciting, sure. Yeah, yeah but you, you don't mess with that at the pro level. No. You're listening to Steve Dace. I personally believe... Elitism. Marxism. Atheist. Government intervention. Secular humanist. Liberals and conservatives. Materialism. Nihilism. U.S. Americans. Christian. Globalist. Socialist. Democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face. Libertarian. Tea Partier. The free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio, as we like to call it. 
where we delve a little bit deeper into the various worldviews that uh, dictate uh, the news events and the debates that uh, we see, witness, and take part in each and every day on this show and, and others like it. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, this week we're going to talk about what might be the most important event in history few know really anything about. Even though when the History Channel did its list in 1999 of the top 100 people of the millennium, two of the top three people of the millennium were key figures in this historical event. It is the 500th anniversary here in 2017 of the Protestant Reformation. Michael Austin is with the Christian History Institute, and he joins us for this Worldview Wednesday to take a look back at what really went down and why, and why it matters even now. Because you could make a case, and we will try to make that case during this conversation, that the America we were originally founded to be would have never happened without this moment in time. So, Michael, my name is Steve Dace. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. How are you? Very well, Steve. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to um, talk about this important topic. So, in my lead-up to bringing you on tonight, did I blow this out of proportion at all, the importance of of this event? No, sir. Not at all. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm impressed by what you said. And uh, you're absolutely right. This is a, uh, a, for we Christians especially, this is a very important event in history, perhaps uh, arguably the the most important uh, event since uh, our Savior walked on this earth, and it changed everything. One of the reasons it changed everything, the decentralization of knowledge, the, the changing of the flow of epistemology in a culture. Um, and, 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 and therefore, when the notion was taken hold that I could have access to God's word in my own native language, that I, I didn't require a central authority structure in order to, to know God and to study his word for myself, it began begging some rather obvious questions, Michael, which is that if my own soul is 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 dealt with on an individual level like this by the most powerful being in the universe, then why don't these same principles apply to science, to economics, to really the way knowledge flows in in every sector of the culture? And this was the point the History Channel made, which is, regardless of where you come down on on Luther and his legacy, where you come down theologically uh, within the uh, within the scope of the Protestant Reformation, the cultural impact it had is what created the, uh, the the rise of free market economics and the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, many of the advances that sa- saved Western civilization and were the foundations of American exceptionalism. Agreed, absolutely. I, I, I love the way you frame this because uh, you're doing so in terms that we today can understand this because we are in the grip of a very similar set of circumstances where uh, the mixture of technology uh, and revelation are coming together in such a way that is it is changing our lives, it is changing our culture. And um, what's fascinating about this uh, uh, this series of articles, this series of, of issues, 
by the way, uh, Christian History Magazine has published four, uh, already have published three. There will be a series, it's a series of four commemorating the, uh, the Reformation. And, um, uh, the impact that, um, this had on the time of, of uh, the 1500s, the 16th century in Europe. Uh, the impact is very similar to what people are experiencing today in that this is a, a totally new world view, or, and, and also gives us an opportunity to have a, uh, a world view of our own. And this is a very personal um, experience. In fact, I, I often refer to Martin Luther as the first celebrity of, uh, of the modern age, because people learned about him, they learned about his life, they learned about what he was thinking due to uh, the invention of the Gutenberg Press, uh, a brand new technology, brand new uh, communications technology, and they learned about an individual who uh, was whose life was changed by scripture, and this was unheard of at the time. You mentioned the parallels between the early 16th century and today, and the advent of technology. And you gave us two two names there: Gutenberg and Luther. And those were two of the top three names listed by the History Channel in terms of the most influential people of the last millennium. And and Luther was not the first attempted reformer that came along. Uh, there were others throughout history. But he was the first one that came along with a, a technology available that allowed him to get his message to the masses around the authority structure that he was challenging in his day. And where I see a parallel in our day is is I have cautioned our audience. When, when, when the government comes to you and says, there's too much smut on the Internet, that's why you need to give us control to clean it up. Listen, go buy your own filter. Police your own internet. Watch what your kids' activity online is. Don't ever let them get their grimy hands on control of it. Because what this is really about, this isn't about cleaning up the internet's red light district. It's about getting control of, of a technological innovation that allows the free flow of information outside of their control. And you don't ever want to give that up. And that's one of the lessons that I think we learned from the Reformation, Michael. Absolutely. The, uh, the religious life in Europe at that time was under complete control of the Catholic Church. Uh, there were other movements, there were other traditions, there were other, other lines of, uh, in, within the history of the faith, but predominantly the Catholic Church was controlling um, the, the life, the religious life in Europe. They were controlling uh, people's ability to read Scripture. Most of their priests could not read Latin. Uh, it was the, the Bible was written, their Bible was written in Latin at the time. Uh, there was really nothing uh, comparable to what we would think of as Bible study. Nothing at all. Um, sadly, our mainline churches today are giving out just about as much information about Scripture as the Catholic Church would in that day, which would be a verse or two. <laughs> but um, I'm sitting uh, here at my desk looking at about, I don't know, about 27 different uh, uh, Bibles uh, sitting next to and me. And that, that didn't exist. 
until this moment in history. Michael Austin is here with us from the Christian History Institute on a Worldview Wednesday looking at the anniversary of the Reformation. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. He has not yet begun to offend. This is Steve Dace. Back here on a Worldview Wednesday here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This Worldview Wednesday, we are commemorating the 500th anniversary of what I think is one of the most important events in all of human history and certainly has been influential uh, in the launching and founding of this country, and that is the Protestant Reformation. Many of the notions of an individual's right uh, and an individual's um, uh, path to relate to God, rights coming from God, as, as our country was founded on, these were notions that simply did not exist in Western civilization prior to this little Augustinian monk one day showing up on Halloween uh, in 1517, and he nailed to the door at Wittenberg a disputation, which were titled 95 Theses, a disputation being an academic term, meaning he was seeking a debate, a dialogue, a discussion questioning some of the teachings and the traditions that were being engaged at the time. And and Martin Luther is, is, to me, a complicated figure. Uh, he is both demonized and lionized. But as is the case with human nature, I'm not sure either one of those things are adequate. Uh, he was uh, brilliant, said some things throughout the course of his time. When you research some of what he said, Michael, that I don't know how else to define them, but are just downright anti-Semitic. On the other hand, um, a lot of us would not be here today enjoying the freedom and spoils of individual liberty in Western civilization without the role that he played in history as well. So who was this, this monk who became a monk without really ever studying the Bible, went to Rome to perform a papal duty while he was there, starts reading Romans one seventeen, and the just shall live by faith. And he said that was the verse that spawned the Reformation. Who was Martin Luther, really? Well, he comes uh, at a time of, of many reform attempts by many others. And so we have to believe that the conversations of, of monks, of priests, of churchmen, uh, was filled with the ideas of reform. So I think in, in, in many ways, Martin Luther is, is held uh, uh, to be far more of a revolutionary than he was in that regard. However, he was a man of extraordinary courage. Um, we, I don't think we can um, imagine the, um, the fortitude, the courage that was required for a monk um, to uh, challenge the establishment the way that he did and you are quite quite right that um we it it changed uh the course of western civilization without a doubt it perhaps um started the western civilization um on the course uh, uh that uh led to what we know today as this uh civilization and this culture which by the way is under tremendous threat uh, because of the Bible and the, the history of the faith being removed from our public education. But uh, Martin Luther is, uh, you're quite right, a very complex man, um, a man of many talents, many gifts, a uh, high intellectual uh, thinker, 
um, and yet someone who could relate to uh, his peers and to those who sought to um, uh, to increase their faith, to have a faith. Um, we have to remember, uh, we have to take into consideration that this was a, a rather closed society that he lived in. Uh, most of the common people, if you'll excuse that term, um, the peasants, uh, the people that were um, you know, going to work every day, were not engaged in these issues. And so these issues were being discussed within the monasteries, within the cloisters, uh, within the church. And he stood up uh, to, well, I, I'm reminded of, of the Chinese uh, uh, um, advocate, uh, who at Tiananmen Square stood in front of a tank. And uh, it, it's that kind of image that comes to mind when I think of Martin Luther. Here I stand, I can do no more. May God have mercy on my soul. A couple of years ago for a family vacation, we went down to uh, Springfield, Illinois, because it was the closest place. The family that owns the Hobby Lobbies, they have that, uh, that traveling Bible archive exhibit. Uh, a lot of artifacts that they've collected over the years that are really expensive, and they were taking it around the country. And it is extraordinary. And Springfield, Illinois was the closest to Des Moines. And one of the fascinating things in there is, and in fact, I don't think I've even mentioned this to you guys when we've talked about this before. There is a video of, uh, that, that has, that's a sort of a holographic video of Erasmus and Luther. Uh, the, the two rivals who, I mean, Luther used to pray, God curse Erasmus. This, these were the alter egos of this time. And you can watch them go back and forth on these issues. And it's, it's objectively portrayed with each side putting their best foot forward. And my kids didn't get it. I sat there and watched that cotton picking thing for 15 minutes. I couldn't get enough of it. I waited for it to reload. I thought it was so cool. Michael Austin is here with us from the Christian History Institute looking at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Putting the fun back in fundamentalist, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on a Worldview Wednesday, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We're looking at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, maybe the most important moment in human history few know anything about. And we're doing so with Michael Austin, who's our tour guide tonight from the Christian History Institute. And Michael, how can people get more information about what you guys do before we run out of time this evening? Well, they can go to the website, uh, christianhistorymagazine.org. And by the way, they can read this, uh, all of the articles in this magazine. There's a, a very uh, excellent reader um, on, the, uh, on the homepage. They can also read all of the past issues. This, by the way, is the 100, well, the, the, uh, the most current issue is uh, 120, which covers Calvin. And um, all of these issues can be read right on the uh, right on the website. So that's uh, ChristianHistoryMagazine.org. The word reform means to form again, not necessarily to replace. And without getting too much into the theological weeds here, because the Reformation was much more than than Luther to borrow to borrow a historical 
um, uh, analogy. He may have been the cow that kicked over Mrs. O'Leary's lantern that started the fire, but uh, um, there was a lot more oxygen that was allowing it to breathe. You mentioned Calvin. You mentioned, I mean, other names, Knox, Zwingli. These are people that were also prominent during this time for Theo nerds like me. But I wonder how much of what many of the reformers were trying to reform, how much of it was uh, uh, returning to original teachings that had long been lost, in the, and, or they had viewed had been lost in their era from men like Augustine, for example. How much were early church thinkers influential in what they said and did, and how much of it really was new? Well, I think they were heavily influenced by uh, Greek and Roman history uh, figures such as uh, Augustine or Augustine um, and and many others. They were uh, this was their um, let's see <laughs> how to express this. Um, it's sort of like the sea that they were swimming in. Uh, you mentioned Erasmus, who was who would be in the category of a Christian humanist. Humanism that was coming out of the um, out, out of the uh, Renaissance, uh, not Renaissance, but the uh, the um, uh, the culture of the Roman culture, the Greek culture. Um, humanism was was influencing uh, in, enormously, and and I think the the everyday culture, the everyday thinking, would be uh, as it is today. Um, heavily humanist. Now, it's a different kind of human, humanism, because uh, in that day they were applying uh, the humanism that comes from the Greek culture and the Roman culture to Christian, a, 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 a deep uh, 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 Christian worldview. Uh, today we're casting away the, uh, the, the Bible and the Christian worldview, and 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 thinking and, and living in the sea of, of um, uh, secular humanism. But, uh, yes, they were heavily influenced by uh, the traditions they were seeking, I believe. They were trying to, uh, in a sense, reform, to go back to the heart. Of course, they had this incredible um, uh, resource in, in their hands, uh, that they never had had before, which was, of course, the Scripture. The Scripture was being translated. Uh, Wycliffe, uh, just a, a century earlier, had uh, translated the Bible. John Huss had uh, been burned at the stake by the Catholics uh, for uh, translating the Bible. John Wycliffe was at work, uh, uh, having come from England and was translating the Bible. It was a time and a, and a time of enormous change and very rapid change that I think only we today can understand with the effect that the Internet has had. Um, imagine if the Internet was all the Bible, all the Scripture, that this, this, this driving force of technology had everything to do with Scripture and the Bible and how exciting that, uh, that would have been. Um, you, you described the danger of the Internet. Well, uh, of course, the, the establishment at that time in the Catholic Church felt the same way about people actually being able to read the Bible themselves. What is a way that people living right now, listening to us today, what's a way the Protestant Reformation influenced what they take for granted that they may not even understand or, or realize, Michael? 
I think one thing is the actually actually the founding of this country, which of course was the fruit of something that started back at the Magna in the day of the Magna Carta, when people began to um, change their worldview, namely uh, adhering to what the king had to say, thinking of the king as actually being the power of God himself, and beginning to think of a a different law, a different worldview, a a different way of comprehending uh, their everyday experience. Um, And that movement, uh, which which, uh, began in Europe uh, several hundred years before people came to the United States, that movement, the fruit of that movement uh, is this country that we live in today. We take for granted our personal freedoms. We take for granted our our personal, uh, you know, ideas of our personal destiny, uh, of actually making choices about um, how we might educate ourselves and how we might live our lives. These concepts are thoroughly were were thoroughly foreign. Uh, in the day that we're talking about uh, 500 years ago in the Reformation. Michael, fascinating conversation. One more time before we have to let you go here. Uh, Take a few seconds and remind our audience how they can learn more about this event and follow what you guys do there at the Christian History Institute. Go to christianhistorymagazine.org, and uh, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, It actually is a research uh, resource. Lots of articles, lots of um, uh, material. To, uh, to explore, and by the way, there is a uh, they can find a, a video titled "This Changed Everything" uh, on that on that website, which is a, a wonderful um, series of interviews of theologians and and authors um, that uh, will inform them about. Uh, this time and this incredible change in history. Thank you, Michael. Great conversation. We'll do it again sometime. We'll come back, wrap things up here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Radio's version of the Red Pill. You take the Red Pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's Steve Dace. Fascinating conversation with Michael Austin. At least I was fascinated. Hopefully you were as well. Looking at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation here on our Worldview Wednesday. So what do we learn from this conversation, Todd and Aaron? What would you think as you listen to what Michael had to say? Uh, God is an omniscient God, and he's uh, in control of everything, and he has a plan. And what I read about the Reformation and uh, what resulted from that, mainly in the context of getting the Bible translated into a common language, God used all of that, those those uh, decades and hundreds of years surrounding the Reformation. God used that to give us no excuse. Look at the number of translations that are available uh, today because of what um, what happened through the Reformation. And, and again, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about Bible translations. That is being used to give nobody, no people group, nobody an excuse not to know the gospel and to know God. 
And I think this is, again, you, you can look back through history and just look at the way and the people that he used and the, um, the, the tapestry that's woven um, by our creator to give us all a way to know him better. That's, that's my takeaway. Todd? Uh, a couple points. The Catholics back in the day certainly did have Bible study, but like the priests you mentioned that were illiterate, almost everybody was illiterate. I mean, Martin Luther came along and capitalized on the age of the printing press. I mean, the timing uh, was perfect, but Catholics had the Mass, Catholics had the Rosary, all of which are uh, deeply immersed in uh, Scripture. So there's that. And from the point of the hierarchy of the Church, this is important. While it is a very good thing that every single Christian has access to the Bible, if you have a good king, a, a good pope, things uh, will work out well. If you don't, things can work out poorly. But the same holds true to the particular individual reading that Bible. Ain't that the are truth? are yes. we any better off in this day and age, following how many hundreds of years after the Protestant Revolution, because everybody's had access to the Bible? I mean, you had split after split after split after split. It wasn't just, oh, finally it's here. No, the breaking continues to this very day. So as the Catholic, I, I, I heard that within the spirit of goodwill, which it wasn't intended, but I also, and I don't think it was his purpose to set up any straw men. I just want to make sure nobody gets carried away with it. Well, one of the things I have said on this show before that has really angered people is there, there, there are Protestants who like to refer to, and you've heard this pejorative. And there's enough pejoratives that go around on both sides. And the history of both sides in this conflict, by the way, is not one of, uh, of putting your best foot forward and necessarily the best optics. Preach. Okay. But, but one of the pejoratives Protestants, some Protestants still like to throw at Catholics is you're not Christians, you're Papists. Well, you know, I, I know a lot of Protestants who, who, if that's what they believe, if that's their definition of what that means, are papists themselves. Yeah. It's just their papacy might be in Colorado Springs. <laughs> it might be in Atlanta, Georgia. It might be in Lynchburg, Virginia. You know what I'm trying to say here? How dare you have a different opinion than this evangelical leader who's been around a lot longer than you? And I'm not, I don't have a different opinion. I'm just asking why we don't do what the Bible says. Is the, and if this isn't what the Bible says, then tell me what it says. John 3, 17. You're listening to Steve Dace.